Good morning. It's October 6th. We're continuing in our class called The Least of These. And our launching pad is this passage from Matthew 25 about the final judgment. I thought we would read it to stay focused on uh, what has launched us. And we're building in this class, we're laying a foundation, perhaps overly tediously, to move later on in the semester to look very carefully at some of the specific nature of our relationships within the church, particularly those who are different from us. So somebody who has the original handout is printed there for you, or just open a Bible. We want to read again Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. And for the sake of those listening on the recording, if you're chosen to read, do your best. Maybe stand, if you would, and read loudly so that the recording picks it up as best as possible. So who wants to start us? Matthew 25, 31. This very sobering, uh, vivid picture of the Last Judgment. You got it, Jim? Yeah. Thank you. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger? and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the fire, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you? Then you will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you, Jim. We've been making observations about this text. One of the most obvious is the text is teaching that those who have received mercy in the gospel, their reception of mercy, their belief in the gospel, their trust in grace, always shows up at least half in how they show mercy to others. And the 10-page handout I promised last week, I'm going to have to delay you two weeks on because I decided rather than do that and jump back into this handout, let's finish this handout. And then we'll, the 10-page handout that's coming is going to unpack the idea that Jesus is teaching that, that he is in such solidarity with his people that whatever is done 
or not done to them is done or not done to Christ. And that bears, what's well, actually 12 pages, so I lied. That bears 12 pages of unpacking, and that's in two weeks. Next week, come to this classroom, the missions committee has a special presentation for you from someone. I forget exactly who it is. But you see the point. Those who live by mercy, they're in relationship with God through the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ. We're going to sing today, after the sermon and before communion, Psalm 51, the indelible grace version. That's actually out of the hymnal from the Psalter, Psalm 51. God be merciful to me. On thy grace I rest my plea. Where do you rest your plea to make a claim on the presence of God? Where do you rest your plea that God should let you into his paradise? Where do you rest it? On grace. On mercy. Those who have received mercy, that by definition, show mercy to others. And when that mercy is shown, Jesus is saying, thank you, you've done it to me. Or if you've not shown it, you've not shown it to me. So I don't want to get ahead of myself on the implications of the principle of solidarity. So that's just a teaser for two weeks from now. So I want to go to the handout. We're looking at the, the last two pages of the handout. And we're going to scroll down to the middle of the next to last page where I raise the question at D. Why is God so attentive to the needs of the destitute? Is that a fair question? I mean, here are the destitute. This is the basis for the final judgment. Nothing could be more important. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Right? The final judgment. We live in light of this, uh, of standing before the glorious throne of Jesus. And so apparently, God is very attentive to the needs of the destitute. So much so that what you've done to them, you've done to Jesus. What you've not done to them, you've not done to Jesus. So raising that question, before you look at the answer, what, what's the first, before what I've written down, what, what are some answers that pop into your mind? Why is God, and you can't read the Bible and not come to this conclusion too, why is God so interested in the destitute? Is that what we'd intuitively expect? Any thoughts? Answers to that question? Good and loud, of course. Pat, good and loud, sorry. Okay. If I'm looking through it through the lens of how that God is seeing me, he has to see me through Jesus Christ, his son. So he sees me as destitute and fatherless and motherless, and, and I have no one to help me because he sees me as already under curse as he is. So he sees me alive through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so I got two things there. Thank you. One, Pat is saying, the only thing God can see is he looks at a fallen world as destitute people. That's all there are. Once we were banished from, there was no destitution in paradise. This is a little bit coming in the sermon this morning. There's no destitution in paradise, but once sin ruined life, all there is is destitute people. And so what's amazing is that life works as well as it does. Now, we are 21st century Americans, and we've lived in probably an, an error and a place, if, if you've lived in America for any length of time, lived in an error and a place of unprecedented what in the history of the world? Unprecedented wealth, wealth prosperity, goodness. You, know, you have a medical condition, you can get almost anything addressed medically. 
Nonetheless, spiritually and morally, and sadly still physically, people are destitute. So Pat is saying, um, um, not only are we, are we destitute since we were kicked out of Eden, but that's all reversed as we are in union with Jesus Christ. The Father sees us as beautiful as his son. With, with the, and what a, what a promise of the gospel. And that's the good news that mo- motivates us to show mercy to others. We're not earning our salvation. We're not trying to prove anything to God. What else? What's another observation? Why is God so interested in, interested in the destitute? One answer is it's all he can be interested in. Although God could say, you, you messed up this world, I'm done. I'm going to another planet. Let's see if I can do something on Jupiter or Mars. Being a little facetious. What's another answer to the question? Why is God so interested in the destitute? Uh, Jim? Six people that need him, uh, that are dependent upon him. I mean, on one side we have pride and independence, okay, and 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 then the, on people that are needy are more dependent and uh, more humble. So God seeks the humble. It's it's just sort of factually the case that people who can't provide for themselves, it's factually the case that people who are more dependent and broken know their need of God, and we'll look at this a little bit later in the class, the poor are closer to the kingdom of heaven because they cannot be deceived by wealth and comfort. They can't be deceived by it. Think of the the rich man and Lazarus. Every day the rich man leaves his house, walks by Lazarus, and has to close his ears to the cry of the poor. Every day. He's so comfortable that he doesn't feel his need of... And that, you know, Lazarus is a picture of the rich man spiritually. Sick. Unable to move. Destitute. A beggar. We're all beggars spiritually. I digress a little bit. Okay. So Jim's point is, um, God, God, who's a God of grace, grace always flows where? It always goes downhill. It always goes to the needy. Grace doesn't go to the strong. It goes to the needy, the broken, the weak. That's the nature of grace. Okay, any other answers to the question? Why is God so interested? Do you ever think about this? Do you ever meditate on this? Joan Kathy. There really aren't others interested in helping. There aren't, you know, those, the people who are really in need. There aren't lots of people knocking at their door saying, oh, we're here to help outside of those who serve Christ. So the ones, so... That's a group that really, really needs help. Okay, so God himself has to bring this to pass because we humans, by disposition, are going to be indifferent to the the desperate needs of other people. So God is overcoming where human indifference exists. Thank you. Lee, well, Lee and then Frank, yeah. Uh, One thing that strikes me is uh, Jesus felt compassion. And God is a God of compassion. Because when he saw all the throngs yeah. on the hills of the Sea of Galilee, he said, this is like a lost sheep. And he had such compassion for them. And then many, many other examples. So, um, Good. Why he cares so much for them. So, so God, by virtue of who he is, is a God of compassion. That's who he is in his heart. And of course, the word means to feel with. And not only, you know, when Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem, lamenting Jerusalem, he was looking at their spiritual state. Boy, they're, they're scattered like sheep without a shepherd. 
he was concerned that the teachers of Israel weren't shepherding the people well. And it broke his heart, and he knew himself as the good shepherd. Where else does Jesus show his compassion? When he meets a funeral, what does he do? Every funeral he meets, what does he do? He raises the dead. He can't stand that people die. He can't stand it. Because death is not a natural part of his created, the created order. Yeah. And all, of course, these all prefigure not only the final resurrection of all of us, but they prefigure his resurrection. When Jesus meets sick people, what does he do? He can't not heal them. He, that this is, he's got this immense heart of compassion. Okay, so I want to, last week we ended by pointing out that one answer to the question, oh, Frank, you wanted to say something. Yeah, Christ lived out his life as, as a, a poor person. He didn't have any place to lay his head. Um, he was not rich. He, so he, I think he, he intentionally wanted to identify himself with the poor. Great segue to what's under D on the handout. Why is God so interested? He had a son who was all of these things. Okay? Uh, Jesus was homeless. He had no place to lay his head. He was poor. He had no positions but the clothes on his back. They, they uh, gambled those away. And he was dependent on the gifts of women. Isn't that beautiful? That would have been kind of a slam and a slur in the ancient world because, you know, women weren't very highly thought of. So here's this itinerant preacher who, oh, man, he, he has to look to women to support him. Yeah, he wasn't ashamed to be supported by this dear group of women. Was Jesus a prisoner? Mm-hmm. At least the last night of his life in Caiaphas' prison. Was Jesus hungry? When was he first hungry, as it were? In the wilderness, 40 days without food and water. 40 days. And of course, he's probably hungry and dying of thirst on the cross. Was he rejected and despised? Yes, that clear picture from Isaiah 53. Uh, and vulnerable, absolutely defenseless on the cross. Defenseless in his, making himself defenseless. He had lots of defenses. He said, I could call down, uh, what, uh, 12,000 angels right now if I wanted to. But he resisted calling into Calvary to become defenseless in our stead because as God accuses us of sin, we are defenseless. There's, there's no way we can respond and defend ourselves. There's Jesus in our place taking the blame. So as Frank is saying, Jesus, God, his Father, and Jesus identify with all of these types of people because Jesus was one. Stunning. You worship a God who was homeless, sick, in prison, rejected, hungry, thirsty. It just should melt us and cause us to worship. So, let's go then to E, which is somewhat related. Where does Jesus get these categories? Again, these are the categories used in the final judgment. He's not examining people for how good their doctrine is. Is good doctrine important? Yes. That's not the basis of the final exam. For Jesus, the true evidence that you are a person in the grip of mercy is you are showing mercy to others, not even cognizant that they are Christ's. Even better if you know they're Christ. That's a good reason to love you. You belong to Jesus. 
But if I don't have that reason, I've been shown mercy, how can I not show mercy? So where does Jesus get these categories? Hungry, naked, thirsty, stranger, prisoner, and sick. Where does he get them? Is that a fair question to ask of the story? Great. Gets him from the heart of his father. We've established that these are the kinds of things that move the heart of God. He's a God of compassion by definition. So here's a question as you look at those things. Would you want to be that? I mean, would you want to be hungry, naked, thirsty, stranger, prisoner, sick? No. Were you created for any of those things? No, the guard paradise had none of this. Well, they had nakedness without shame, but, but <coughs> paradise had none of those things. So we look, we're supposed to look at these and go, I, I don't want to volunteer for that job. How many of you want to volunteer for the job of going without food for the next week? How many of you want to volunteer to, to be put in prison here for six months in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in China who are in prison. How many want to volunteer for that job? No, I'd rather just come and go with the freedom that I enjoy. So, if you wouldn't want that to be you, would you want one of your loved ones to be this? No. If one of your loved ones was this, what would you do? You'd find a way to help them, right? Okay. So I'm going to ask this question about these categories. What do they have in common? What do they have in common? This is, if you look at a text, one of the points I'll make in my sermon at the beginning is you only get as much out of the text as you ask of it. So the more questions you ask of the text, the more you get out of it. Why does it say that? Why doesn't it say that? It's kind of what we've been doing in the last, for the last 15 minutes. What do these categories have in common? What unites them all as you look at them, just to make observations of them? What does it have in common? You could say there are people who are... They're lacking resources, some kind of resources. Good. They're very needy. They lack resources. Very obvious. They lack resources. Good. What else do they have in common? They're strangers. They lack a social... Good. So there's a kind of a social alienation. Um, we, weren't, we weren't built to go this alone. Boy, you get put in a prison cell. Ah. And uh, what do we typically do with people who are hungry and all messed up? We try to keep them at arm's length. We don't like to go run and associate with them. Good. So there's, a, there's an added social alienation to this that comes with it. It's the woman at the well. She's ashamed of her lifestyle. That's why she's there alone in all likelihood. What else do they have in common? What's that? They're powerless. In a sense, the implication is they can't do anything about this. Powerless. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Talk to me about powerlessness. On the one hand, let's just do it on the one hand and on the other hand. On the one hand, it's powerlessness as a category. Is it okay? On the one hand, no, no because it, it, it shows shame, it shows that you can't do it for yourself, it shows that 
hurts you, but makes you vulnerable. On the one hand, powerlessness is not good. Look at how Adam and Eve were created. They controlled everything. It was a control freak's paradise, literally. On the other hand, I feel like I'm powerless to bring any good in my life without the grace of Jesus. I'm powerless. And that drives us to what? Pray and fellowship. Help me, brother. Pray for me, brother. Help me, encourage me. I, we need each other. So, on the one hand, good. On the one hand, bad. Okay, what else do they have in common? Okay, you can't hear yourself. And the self who is hurting, these ultimately affect the body. God is not a mystic. These people have physical needs that matter to God. He cares about food, right? Every time people are hungry, Jesus feeds them. They're thirsty. He splits the rock in the wilderness and gets them water. These were about physical needs. It is a good thing to meet physical needs. It is a good thing to care for your body. Not worship it, but to care for it. What else do they have in common? So, go ahead. Anybody? I'm sorry? They're going to be sad emotionally for their, probably. Again, we don't naturally relish these kinds of things, so these people are also also hurting uh, emotionally. So, what about the question of fault? Whose fault is it? They're hungry, imprisoned, thirsty, without clothing, without shelter. Can we ask that question? I think I think wisdom addresses all of these things, so it can be a wisdom issue. So, whose fault is it? What's the answer here? What? Don't know, and I'm not sure it matters to Jesus. I'm really glad you brought that up. Tell us, Lee. Well, that's just what I struggle with because we're all victims of our own circumstances, right? I mean, our own decisions, I mean, we're in certain circumstances because of the decisions we make. In general, everyone did. Yes. Um, but as you said, when he said, Give to the poor, he never said, unless they're going to go outside something they don't need with it, unless they're going to take advantage of you. I've been struggling with that over the last year or two. And or am I conflating the name of a book with a mercy conference you all had? Well, they, uh, it was the mercy ministry conference, but there was a side conference on, um, on when helping hurts. Okay. okay. So there is such a thing as helping in a way that hurts people. Right? The proverb says, don't rescue an angry man so many times. There's a time for people to have to live with the consequences of their decisions. 
We have a sister in our church who's wrestling with her relationship with her daughter, and it's painful, and her daughter's ruining in her life, and she, as a mother, wants to rescue her daughter, but now she's, anyway, one of our own sisters is wrestling with what that looks like. So whose fault is it? I'm not sure. I don't know. At the final judgment, Jesus isn't placing fault. It's a question you can ask, but be careful how you ask it, because not only have we made bad choices, as Lee says, we've all been sinned against. We've all been sinned against by those who love us dearly. How many of you were perfect parents? <laughs> how many of you have perfect parents? Okay, then you were sinned against. Okay, so just worth asking, is there any other observation you want to make about, what, about these categories? Rock, sorry. These are, these are all victims of the fall. Okay. All of these things are in the world because this is a fallen world. None of these existed in paradise. Is that what you mean? Yeah. <coughs> yes. They say that thirst is more, pain, is more painful than hunger. Thirst pangs are worse than hunger pangs, is what I've heard. And of course, Jesus on the cross, I thirst. That's both spiritually, because his father's abandoning him, and physically. He hasn't had anything to drink almost assuredly since the Last Supper. Almost assuredly. And, you know, there's all the blood strained out of his body from being whipped, and the moist, the, the, the fluids that's in his body and his blood is... No, he was really thirsty. Okay, so those are some good observations. These are the things these have in common. What they reveal to us is the heart of the Father. It's the next point I want to make. So let's look at Psalm 146. These categories. And we've made the point, but I think it's worth grounding this in Scripture. Let somebody read for us Psalm 146. Nice and loud. Think about what it reveals of the heart of the Father and how it prefigures the incarnational ministry of Jesus. You've got a beautiful portrait of it here. Psalm 146. Who would read it nice and loudly for us? Thank you, Pat. Fine. We'll have to do double translation. From Old English to New. Okay, now, nah, that's fine. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Wonderful. So, what's the contrast drawn here between putting your focus on two people? One, don't trust. 
don't trust humankind. Don't trust man. Included in that is who? You. Don't trust yourself. Why? You're going to die. And you ultimately don't have control over everything. And you can't provide everything whenever you want it. And that's in contrast to who should you trust? God. Does God give you tangible reasons to trust him? Isn't that wonderful? It'd be okay with God just to say, I'm God, trust me. That should be enough. It should be enough. God gives us reasons to trust him. What are they? He's the creator. He's the creator. He answers our prayers. He keeps his promise. That's the whole basis of trust. God makes promises, and he is trustworthy. He keeps his word. And what are the things he says he does to prove that, according to the psalm? And what does it sound like? Okay. So, so do you ever do this when you're discouraged, you're feeling down, you've got doubts, you've got fears? You're wrestling in your relationship with God, maybe wondering, am I even a Christian? Do you go back to the fact that God created you, that you wanted me to exist? I do that. I go, no, wait, just a second, Mike. God created you. God wanted you to exist. So I'm appealing to what you guys are saying to the doctrine of creation. I have no existence apart from God. It was God's pleasure to give me birth, February 22nd, 1956, 30 miles up there, Women's Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. It was his pleasure. He wanted me to exist. And then he saved me. So to, uh, he recreated me in Christ. So two, two reasons. But I, I often go back. How many of you find solace for your soul going back to the fact that he created you? Just a couple. Okay, some of us. Good. And what are the tangible things God proves in technicolor that he does to show that he's trustworthy? He takes care of the needy. He really has a heart for human destitution and brokenness. He proves it. And this is, you know, you, you, we, could annex, we could annex these things in the history of Israel. And as we look forward to the ministry of Jesus, do you see Jesus fundamentally doing these things? Yes. And now how does Jesus continue to do these things? Through his church, through us. It hasn't stopped. God still does these things. He gives food to the hungry. He executes justice for the oppressed. Uh, sets a prisoner free. Open the eyes of the blind. Maybe in our case, that's giving somebody money for eye surgery. Maybe that's laying hands on and praying. Maybe if somebody isn't cured of blindness, but they have a spouse or a friend. Who's, we have, don't we have a gentleman in our worship congregation now who's blind? We do. We had one, Colby was blind. He was with us about a year ago and he's moved to Pennsylvania. Well, God has given sight to Colby by partnering with a faithful wife who helps him get around. Maybe you feel called to help with a braille ministry. There's lots of ways to fulfill God giving sight to the blind. The more creatively we think, the more outside the box we think, the more the kingdom is enriched. So, Alright. God has a heart to meet human needs. Is there any doubt about that? Yay! What a God! Who would think up this God? <laughs> and the way he gets us, our human needs, is all through the destitution of his son, Jesus. Jesus has become nothing. Jesus dies. Jesus' blood is drained from his life. Jesus is mocked and scorned, penniless, friendless. It is through the poverty of Jesus that God's riches come to us.
Every breath you take is ultimately a function of the grace of the cross. Every beating of your heart is ultimately if any of you exercise, any of you try to get exercise or have fitness. Okay, so you start out your exercise, what do you pray? Thank you for every step. Thank you for every beating of my heart. Thank you for the breath in my lungs. They're all gifts through the cross, ultimately. And the fact that we're surrounded by millions of people who don't acknowledge that is wrong. It's to their detriment and it's something God calls us to change. By bringing in, I think as Lee prayed in our prayer time this morning, Lord, give me opportunities to share the love of Christ. It's one of the ways God is doing something about it to us. Okay, next thing. God has a heart for the disadvantaged. So we're, just go back one psalm, Psalm 145. Somebody read verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Who would think of the infinite God that 10 billion galaxies can't contain him? They can't contain him. His presence fills 10 trillion galaxies. Who would think that he bows down to raise up the Father? Now, that's a mystery to me. But this is how God reveals himself to us. And you think of Jesus in his ministry. Didn't Jesus do this in his ministry? Right? You get this demon-possessed kid flailing around on the ground. And Jesus begins interviewing the Father. You know, how did this come to pass? And I'm, I'm the Father. I'm thinking, just say something. Just say something, you know. Tell me about this. His son's flailing around now. He bows down. Jesus lifts up. This is you. He does this for you. Wherever you are. Students struggling with your professors. Not in the soils department, of course, but other professors. <laughs> what a God. Uh, Psalm 147.3. You probably don't have to change many pages in your Bible. Somebody read Psalm 147.3. Well, read 2 and 3. No, one, two, and three. <laughs> Reasons for it. One, two, and three. Who's got it for us? Got it, you? Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He, he gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Thank you. And, you know, just to go on to the point I was making before, he determines the number of the stars, gives names to all of them. How many stars exist in the... A few. <laughs> he's given every one of them a name. That means he's in control of them. He owns them. He's sovereign over them. And that same God does what? He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. My goodness. Your wounds, beloved. Your broken. And again, praise the Lord. It's good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant. A song of praise is fitting. That in and of itself should be enough. It is right to praise God. And then God gives us the reasons. And they have to do with human hurt. They have to do with compassion. They have to do with brokenness. It moves the heart of God. Stunning. God has a heart of justice, fair wages, Working conditions that we could get. I've got a lot more song, uh, verses coming on this, but for now, just go to Proverbs 31.5. We're going to have an extensive look at God's heart for the poor. 31.5. Who's got it? Proverbs 31.5. Okay, thank you. 
Let's stay drink and forget the law and prevent the judgment of any of the afflicted. So this is kings, not to abuse alcohol, and because that would influence them in such a way that they would pervert the rights of the afflicted. So you, you can, couldn't blame uh, God if he said here, kings shouldn't come under the influence of substances because they'll govern poorly. Their, their theology would turn bad. They'll get pompous. And maybe all of those things are true. But what's on the sage's heart? Pervert the rights of the afflicted. Why? Because God identifies with the afflicted. He's the one we're going to see who gives rights on behalf of the afflicted. God has a heart of generosity. Sorry, go back to 145. Psalm 145, 15 and 16. If you said, okay, pop quiz. Look into the heart of God. What's the first thing that's evident? What's the first thing you see? What's the first thing you see in the heart of God? Sorry? Well, Psalm, uh, Psalm 145. 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open their hand, your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. You see irrepressible generosity. What is God like? Irrepressible generosity. He can't not be moved to meet the needs of his creatures. Again, he'd have a son who needed his diapers changed. He'd have a son who was thirsty, hungry, needed a nap in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. He had a son. God's heart is irrepressibly generous. And you're a testimony to that. If you've had food, and you've had breath, what if we just calculated all the minutes each of us has lived and built a memorial to the faithfulness of God based on those minutes? How many minutes do you think we'd have represented just in this room, let alone every human being in the history of the world? He's good to every human being. And the point is, it's high time they acknowledged it and lived in life. We're living a lie to the extent our lives are first marked by delighting in the source of all things. And we're kidding ourselves to think somehow we had something to do with it. Now, are we responsible to be good stewards of our lives? Of course. Um, so, we're, so flip the page. We're called to mirror this in action. And I provided there for you uh, Proverbs 3. Who would read there from the handout for us? Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. Thanks, Jan. So, so what situation is this anticipating? What, what's, going, what's, what's this anticipating? It's one o'clock, your favorite team is on. <laughs> and you've got your favorite beverage. And it's like, honey, get rid of the kids, I'm just going to watch the game. Right? And somebody needs something. Tomorrow! I worked hard all week. 
this is my time to relax, right? This is anticipating someone encroaching upon your TV time, your time, your relaxation, your energy, your money. What are you hoping for? What are you hoping for? Yeah, well, I well, call call Rock. He might be able to help you. <laughs> what are you hoping for? They're going to go away. They're going to go away. Do you have needs that ever go away? Do you have needs that ever go away? You need breath two seconds from now, and God is meeting that need. Just for starters. God never says to his own, go away. He welcomes us filthy false worshipers because of the merits of Jesus. So, don't withhold good to whom it is due. You have to make a judgment or they do it. You have to make a judgment. It may be that this is the 16th time in 16 days they're coming asking for bread and the answer might be no. Get off your butt, get a job, earn your own money. You're stealing from me by doing this. To whom it is due. It's a wisdom issue. Read Proverbs. It's a wisdom issue. You've got to be convinced in your conscience. So some of you, you see the guy on the median in the street, homeless. Some of you always stop and give money. That's between you and the Lord. I don't. I think they're professional beggars. I could be wrong. I'm going to answer to Jesus for that one day. And I have in the past, but it's not my pattern to do that. That's just me. I wouldn't bind your conscience in any direction or another. Okay. So you see the proverb there. Come again, I'll give it to you tomorrow. When you have it. So you're basically, you're, you're kind of lying. Sort of. I've got it, and I'm not revealing that I've got it. Okay, so there's lots of questions to answer when you look at this passage from Matthew 25. What does the Lord require? Who should receive such help? Um, why does he require it? Why are people so needy? I think we've teased that out, that this is a fallen world. And when we're faced with the needs of others and there's a reticence in us to help, don't I have to ask, what is wrong with my heart that I am stingy, selfish? What is wrong with me? Self-promoting, self... What's wrong with me? And, you know, the Bible gives me the answer. I'm a, I was born wrecked by the fall. Why do people hurt? Why do they hate each other? Why do they hinder each other? Why do they harm each other? Why are there such awful governments in this world? Awful governments. They're evil. And people live in awful conditions because of awful governments. And that's because ideas have consequences. Worldviews make a difference. We are blessed to live in the, under this kind of government that gives us this kind of freedom. We're to pray for this kind of freedom, according to the scripture. So lots of questions. You know, is there a time not to help? So let's look at the Westminster Confession on the Last Judgment as we wrap up this section. Uh, these are the appointed standards of our denomination. You don't have to believe them. All your officers do. All your officers do. So somebody read paragraph 1, chapter 33 of the Confession, and the title is of the Last Judgment. Nice and loud. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, 
But likewise, all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Thanks, Dory. So we've, I think we've established that very clearly from Scripture up to this point in the class. Two, who would read it for us? Thank you, Pat. It's both glorious and horrifying, isn't it? So we who are saved and in union with Christ, that day will prove what? The glory of God's mercy. All who do not know the Lord, the glory of God's justice, getting what they deserve. And three, a lot more we can say about it, but we're really out of time. Number three, this is where they get pastoral on us. There's not a lot of pastoral in the Westminster Confession as opposed to the Heidelberg. Here they get pastoralism. Somebody read free for us. <laughs> as Christ would have us be certain, certainly persuaded that your shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin, and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they do not know at what hour the Lord will come, and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Thank you, Hugh. So as a pastor, I'm asked by some people from time to time, thanks to a certain teaching that came up in the early 1900s, do you think we're in the last days? Do you think that we're at the end of time? And I say, I have absolutely no earthly idea, and it shouldn't matter how I live. It shouldn't matter. How I should live is given us in Scripture, right? If Jesus is coming again, it doesn't matter when. And so what are they saying here pastorally? Are you certainly persuaded there'll be a day of judgment? Are you? And where does it show up? When you feel deterred from sin by it. When you're tempted and you go, there's a day of judgment. That's one reason. What's the best reason to be deterred from sin? It, to not sin glorifies Jesus. It hurts you and it hurts other people. And for the greater consolation of the godly and their adversity, translated, when you're the, the people are punching the snot out of you because you belong to Jesus, you rest that there's a final accounting for that. That's how we can pray for our enemies, knowing God's going to take care of that in the end. You know the story that happened, the, 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 the uh, policewoman who shot... This the story this week. Oh my gosh, the, the glory there, the gospel. All right, and look, and because Jesus isn't telling you when he's coming again, what is that? What is why doesn't he tell you according to the Westminster Divines? Shake off all carnal uh, security. What's what's the main metaphor in Scripture for carnal security? Sleepiness. 
in, in, in the Matthew 24, 25, don't be asleep. 1 Thessalonians 5, don't be asleep. The parable of the sower and the seeds. You're distracted because all the riches and cares of this world are choking out the word that's been seeded, uh, sown in you. So, are, am I living with carnal security? Or am I living watchfully? Good question to ask yourself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your astounding mercy and grace. We are trophies of that grace. And one day, uh, all, all our lives will redound to the glory of your mercy, not giving us what we deserve, but taking it upon yourself on the cross. Now with humble, praiseful hearts, lead us into worship that we might give you something of the glory you deserve. And having done that, serve each other and others as though we were serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.